You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 48, and uh, we're your hosts, Brandon. And Allison. How are you this week? I'm good. I've been really busy. Um, just with the holidays ending, uh, just lots of things to catch up on that have been placed in the back burner. Um, the holidays so, were over a few weeks ago. I know. It or, just uh, takes uh, me a while to get back into the normal, a uh, quote, normalcy of you know, kind of getting back to my normal routine and eating not so heavy dessert food and kind of like weaning myself off of that. So um, I think this year is just taking me a little longer. That's okay. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it's it's cold out or well, at least it's cold here. I mean, I guess not there, but um, colder. So everything's a little slower. You know, it's it's OK. Yeah, it's just like I think a lot of stuff after the holidays slows down, like my husband and I went to, um, there's always an outdoor food truck. I don't want to say like convention, but like, um, on Tuesdays, there's a, a, it's called curbside eats and there's always a whole bunch of food trucks and you just walk up and you order whatever you want and you sit outside and you talk and you know, you meet your neighbors. It's just in our neighborhood. And we went last Tuesday cause we hadn't gone for a while and there was no one there. We were basically the only ones there with our dog. And Is it everyone's was, fooded out and not interested or? I'm not quite sure. I, I'm going to guess they are, you know, after the holidays and all the New Year's resolutions, because these aren't like healthy food trucks. There's one that, you know, that's always there and they have like fish tacos and burritos and cheeseburgers and grilled cheese sandwiches. So it's not like the salad food truck. So I think a lot of people are just kind of, you know, holidayed out. It's uh, everyone hasn't given up on their, uh, their new year's resolutions to eat better yet. So that that's yeah. why they're not there. Yeah. So maybe if they had like a fermented food truck or like the salad food truck, I don't even know if they have that. Maybe there'd be more people, but it's just really weird. It, I feel like a lot of restaurants around here are kind of empty. Yeah. It's everyone's that, just staying home. It's that time of year. Yeah. So I've been catching up on a lot of stuff that I've been neglecting. Um, but I do want to say that I have been, a little more proactive about my ferments this year already. Um, I tried or I'm trying right now to revive my sourdough starter that's been in the back of the fridge since November. Any luck? I hope. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's been in the back and I think everything's kind of dormant. So I've been feeding it the past few days and I even took some of it to make like a trial bread. Um, and it seems to be OK. I still have to bake it tonight. But, um, you know, it's just not as full. Um, it doesn't it doesn't have the really nice curve on the top as it usually does. But it's still I mean, I can tell that it's fermented and it's, you know, producing gas and it's working. It's just like really slow. I have to imagine it's something like if humans were cryo frozen or in some kind of deep, cold sleep that we'd be a little slow waking up, too. I mean, yeah. And I think that, I mean, if, if my, my plan is because it's been sitting in the back of the fridge for since November to feed it a few times and then just make bread out of it and just keep doing that consistently for the next month. So hopefully we have bread like on a regular basis, um, just to get it up and running again. Cause it's just not doing so hot right now. Did, did I catch that correctly? You say you're going to leave it at room temperature. Yeah, it's sitting on our counter, um, and I've been feeding it every day, 
Um, and it seems to be like the first day that I didn't see anything and I was about to, you know, pour it down the drain, rest in peace, have a little headstone with the, next to the garbage disposal. But I just decided like, I know it's going to work. I'm a scientist. I know that they're just dormant right now. I just have to just have to keep doing it. Um, so, you know, it's this is day like four or five and it's slowly bubbling. It's still smells like yeast and still smells sour. So that's a good sign. But well, then, it's still kind of slow. Well, then the thing that I think I'd wondered, though, too, is like how much of that is the dormant yeast and how much of that is just new native yeast in the environment that have have colonized. Do you think that they're that I mean, because five to ten days or is generally how long it takes from scratch for me to make a, a sourdough in my kitchen. Do you think that those are just new inhabitants or do you really do you think many of them are the the old ones that have been chilling? You know what? Now that you mention it, it might just be the new inhabitants than the guys that have been hanging out in, you know, up in the air. Um, Which may be similar not... or the same, just. Yeah. But I'm hoping that it gets going here and it gets a little more active than it has been for the past few days. So still crossing my fingers. Any other ferments this year? Um, I just got some new kefir um, microbes. So my goal this week is to start some of that stuff. I'm just kind of waiting um, to see how my sourdough is going because I'm really paying a lot of attention to it and I don't want to neglect it. So even though, you know, two ferments really isn't that big of a deal, if they were two like healthy ferments, sure, I'd go ahead and do my sourdough and my kefir. But since it's just like my sourdough is like in cardiac rest, I'm just like trying to revive it and get it going again. Hey, you get what you- if- you got to do that. And I mean, it's like my sourdough I've been kind of neglecting for the last few days, but I'm sometimes sourdough is one of those things where it's like, yeah, if it doesn't work, I can bring it back to life or just start over. It's a little bit of a hassle to start over or not hassle, but a little bit more time than just keeping it going. But at the same time, I mean, otherwise I've got to keep it active and, and be discarding some or, or figuring out something else like making waffles or pancakes or something else with the sourdough. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it definitely does take a little bit more mindfulness in regard to that, as opposed to some other ferments or even like dairy ferments that sure, I have to take care of those once or twice a week. I'm, I'm fermenting new ones, but at the same time, I'm, I, I this, that's a requirement. Like, otherwise I'm going to lose those heirloom yogurts or, 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 uh, kefir. It's like, I've got to keep those grains healthy. Otherwise they're just going to kind of disintegrate away. So it's sour, sourdough is one of those, those ones that it probably gets the most neglect in my kitchen. Yeah, I would. Well, see, the thing is, like, I really want to keep my sourdough because I've had it since July, which isn't that old compared to some sourdoughs that, you you know, your grandmother had it and you they, she passed it to her daughter and or son and they have given it to you and it's been around for a long time. So I kind of I really want to have one of those. I think that that is such a cool idea. So that I could share with like, whenever we have children, I can share it with them and be like, here, I made this on July 13th of 2013. And I think that would be really cool. <laughs> and there, there is something really fascinating about that idea of being able to hand something down. And it's also interesting because something like sourdough or even uh kefir to a certain extent with the grains, I mean, they're, those seem a little bit more like that's something like something tangible, something that can be passed down. But even the grains are not the same 
living organisms. It's kind of been a, a cycle of life and death for generations. It's like, it's not really the same thing, but it's almost the same thing. Or that sourdough is almost the same thing. And, and it's, um, it's an interesting attachment to have, but I definitely still have it too. Like I, I acknowledge it's like these kind of things are, are fascinating to think about passing down something that isn't necessarily as much a, the case with so much of, at least I'd say with, with food in general, like heirloom seeds are definitely an understandable thing of being able to pass down uh generation or year to year, different, uh, different plants to keep bringing them back and knowing that like I, uh, I, separated those seeds myself, but there's just something about like the organisms that I can't see. And so like, all I can really do is latch on to this concept. And I, I hope to be able to ha- be able to hand something down to, to grandchildren or great grandchildren. And, you know, who knows if it will skip generations of interest, but you know, at least that there's some generation before I pass on that uh, I can pass these things on to. Yeah. I just think it's a really cool idea. I don't have any relatives that do that, that do have any sort of bread, sourdough starters or fermentations. Um, but I just want to, I just want to start it. I think that that would be really cool. Um, I hear naming helps with not killing or not letting it die off. Um, if you name your sourdough, it might, or do you have a name for it? I don't, I've never heard of that, but maybe, maybe that would, that's my problem. It doesn't have a name. It's a faceless, nameless, entity that you sort of want to take care of, but like, if it sounds like you really want something that is a pet that you can like the everlasting pet that will outlast and outlive you. Those things I think deserve names. Do your ferments have names or no? Not? And that's probably why I've lost ferments over the years. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it just sounds like, it just sounds like you need to do it too. Yes. I, I probably should start doing that. I mean, uh, they just get the, they get the generic name. I mean, they get the sourdough starter. They get the, they, they get their title. I guess they don't have a, a name. Although yeah. like my Matsoni yogurt has been abbreviated on its labels to mats. So it's just the first four letters. Uh-huh. I don't know if that counts, but yeah, that counts. I'll say that counts. Mats. That's so that's, yeah. that's the most that I've got. Hmm. Well, he, it's the start. <laughs> and even that I'm kind of like, it's, it's hard because for me, like, I just got a, a new uh, Matsoni or, or sometimes referred to as Caspian sea yogurt. And it's so much more like Matsoni that I've read about at different points or heard described. And it's much more similar to, to Vili in the, the ropiness and stringiness that it has. It's thick, but it's not quite as slimy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's still something that my wife can't stand uh, any of that kind of, texture, but I really, I really am captivated by that. I think it's partly because it's relatively novel in a food kind of thing. And then I was also just because unlike Bulgarian yogurt or the general commercial yogurt out there that, you know, warming up the milk to the nature of the proteins to thicken it and, you know, a bit of evaporation kind of that is, uh, is great, but it feels like I'm doing so much more to the milk in order to get it to actually thicken. And so much of the time when I'm making Bulgarian yogurt, just to perpetuate the the culture so I can use it when I want thick yogurt. I generally just make it without heating the milk. And so I have a very thin yogurt. Whereas with Vili or especially with this new Matsoni, it's like, it's just the transformation is so much more direct because I just put in the, the culture and then I get a thick ropey slimy 
uh, thing that sure is again, like it's, it's, it's the bacteria and the polysaccharide bonds, as far as I understand that are, that are creating this. And so I can understand it on, on a different level, but it's just still something kind of transformative and magical about like the, the consistency of it. That's different than some other yogurts. So like Matt's is kind of getting passed off for M2. It's like, he's kind of getting the, or I, Matt's, I got just, was, I've never referred to it as a he before. So I, I guess maybe I am starting to, to, to think of these things as, as actual, um, entities now too. Yeah. It sounds like it. Um, I think, yeah, I, I just never really thought about that. I've never thought that maybe that'll make a difference. So I'm going to think about it. Um, and I will name my sourdough starter. Maybe it'll be Sam. That just sounds like a good name. Um, follow up so next week to let us know what it is. I will. And I'll tell everyone how it goes too, because it's just like, I'm just like, so wanting it to live and survive and just keep going. I know I can do it. It's just been, you know, just sitting back there looking at me every time I open the fridge, like, please use me. I haven't been used for a long time. Ooh, so did, did I just it... happened to have some free time this week to get it out and, you know, just start that whole process all over again. Was it so old that it was starting to get a little bit of that grayish tint to the the water at the top? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's yes. definitely a neglected sourdough starter. The poor, poor Sam or whatever that name is going to be. He was just, I guess, I guess I'm going to assume that it's a boy too. Um, he's just been looking at me just like so sad. So I'm going to see how it goes, but you would be so proud of me um, or of my husband because after we talked about digital scales a few weeks ago, I put one in my Amazon wish list, um, and my husband bought it for, well, I'm going to assume he bought it for me, but the next thing I knew, I got an email to my inbox and it says, congratulations, you are now the proud owner for, of a digital scale. So I'm really excited about it. I just haven't seen it yet. And I got the email like last week, so I don't know what's taking so long. Huh. It's missing. It's all those yeah. UPS mishaps or whatnot, maybe. Maybe it was because of the weather. Yeah, there was a lot of weather was... stuff too recently. Yeah, Indiana was like stuck. I mean, I don't really know where it was coming from, but I know that it's just taking a long time. Usually Amazon, it's, you know, pretty fast. gets there in a few days and depending be, on like your ownership, like your membership level, it gets there in like the next day. I look forward to the drones, the Amazon drones, once they, they start sending stuff that way. Be quicker. If we ever have one come to my house, I will let you know and take a video of it because they have them in LA that I think they're testing them up in, in Los Angeles. Um, but I kind of heard through the grapevine, but this just could be hearsay. And this was like at a restaurant. I overheard someone's conversation say like, yeah, San Diego's next. Hey, that would be so. great. And then order something fermentation related. It really doesn't matter what it is, but just <laughs> stand by your window and record it coming down and dropping your fermentation thing and like do an unboxing of whatever fermentation related thing is. So at least it's on topic for the show so we can talk about it. Yeah. I just think it'd be really scary. I just like you're sitting there drinking your morning coffee and you look outside and you're like, oh, there it kind of looks like a spider to me, like a big bug um, or spider when it's flying and how it lands and stuff. And I think it's just kind of creepy that it knows where your house is and that it is. I mean, just kind of like it, it just I don't, it, like there's no one driving it. It's just a drone. It just drops stuff at your house. I guess that's true. It could come at any hour too. I wouldn't have to be on my like 
schedule for when to expect things delivered by a, a delivery person because it could, I mean, the drone could come out at any point, but, yeah. uh, we'll see, but I'm really excited about this scale after we talked about it because, um, I was talking to my dad over the holidays. Um, and he was asking me like what I wanted for Christmas and how, you know, stuff's going. And I told him out of the blue that I was getting this, um, scale or I really wanted to scale. And I told him what I was going to use it for. And he just looked at me like I was some crazy weirdo scientist. Cause I told him why I wanted it. And I just want to be a little more accurate when I'm making stuff at home. And I don't know why I haven't had one yet. And he just looked at me like I've taken fermentation one step further. It's so amazing with the scale. And I actually just had something that blew my mind recently, or just was like a, an aha moment with the scale because I've been doing a lot more with, uh, with pasta and making fresh pasta. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to develop something and tweak the, the ratios, but I just was having a, a, like with, with fresh pasta, not exactly fermentation related, but it's food. And, um, and I actually am trying to incorporate yogurt into it to create a little bit of creamy, creamy flavor, but not affect the texture. But beyond that, it's more so thinking of it in ratios and thinking of it being two parts flour and one part egg is the general traditional ratio for an egg based fresh pasta. But I never thought about measuring the egg first because I just get the general idea of how much an egg would weigh. But especially given that these chickens that I've started raising a few months back are, are now starting to lay eggs in this freezing cold. I don't know why they chose this to, I guess they don't really have much choice as to when they're going to start. But um, so now we're getting eggs of different sizes. So we don't even have a standard size, but I crack the egg in a bowl first over the scale and then multiply that weight by 1.5. And then I have my flour ratio if I want to go with that traditional. And then I can start tweaking it from there to add the, the moisture in that I want with the, with the yogurt without and compensating with flour. So that one was, was great because I was like, I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. I guess I've never really thought about it either. Um, but starting with an egg, if I know what the ratio is of how much egg I want compared to how much flour it's, I can calculate everything else that is a lot more, uh, standardized or that I can measure out as opposed to an egg. I can measure that, but then I might be wasting some egg because I can't put it back in a, and reclose the shelf. So, right. Well, and I'm, I, we as Americans are taught to not use the metric system. We're used to use, we're taught to use the U S scale of metric measurement, which is, um, cups, quarts, liters, that sort of thing. So it's just kind of, I think that we've just never really thought about using a scale because everything's in grams, milligrams. Um, so I think that it's just, I'm really excited to kind of make that conversion to how everyone else in the world um, measures stuff. Now, I think coming into this, I have a little bit of a, since I, I come from the same cups and tablespoons and everything that, that, that you do, I measure everything in grams. Like I don't do anything in, in milliliters or, or any volumetric anything. I just weigh everything now. Like I weigh all my liquids and it just, I guess is, I mean, the, the same, I mean, is it just because again, just like generally raised to use tablespoons and cups and all these weird things, um, that other people are raised to use grams and milliliters and don't think anything of it either. I mean, is there any reason why I shouldn't as with your science background, anything that you see glaringly obvious that I'm missing about just measuring everything, uh, water or elsewhere, like just throwing out volume altogether. 
Well, I mean, I never, when I was little and we were baking something in my house, we'd always use um, just measuring cups, just the not, a, just normal re- measuring cups. But it wasn't until I got older and um, I have an aunt who, I she's like Martha Stewart. She like does everything by hand. She like makes her own clothes and she decorates cakes and she does everything. So I went over to her house once because I was um, throwing a bridal shower or something for a friend or, and she was helping. Um, and she taught me a lot about cooking. Um, and she measures, she still uses measuring cups to uh, measure out. And when I talk about the measuring cup, like the cup that you get at the store that has the cup, the half a cup, the one fourth cup, and they're usually a handle on it or something. And you scoop dry stuff into it. Um, she uses that for her dry, her dry goods. And then she uses, um, big glass jars to do all of her liquids, but that's what she does. And she measures that stuff in milliliters and liters, but everything else is just like flour. It's one cup of flour that she measures with her measuring cup. So I don't really know. I think it's like personal preference. Um, but I'm kind of starting to convert more towards doing everything the way she does, where I'll measure my dry goods with a measuring cup. But now with my digital scale, I may not do that. I may do it in grams. Yeah. Especially if you want consistency because flour, oh my gosh, it totally depends on how you scoop it, how it's, how uh, sifted it is to begin with or anything about it. I mean, it's just the consistency between that is just all over the place. So if you're talking about like bread baking, Ooh, working in grams with everything just totally changes the consistency with, with bread and with troubleshooting. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm really excited, especially since, and that may have been like in the back of my mind, why I wanted to revive my sourdough starter, because I really want to do everything in grams. So maybe that was kind of the, the jumping off point was the gram or was the digital scale. So I'm not quite sure, but I'm really excited about it. I am very happy for you. Grams all the way. And it's exciting. It's uh whoa, your sourdough is going to become amazing. It's going to, your sourdough starter is going to wake up. You're going to be measuring everything. It's going to be great. And you're going to have stories of stories, not only to share with us about how amazing your bread's turning out, but also with uh, any of those future generations that you're handing the sourdough starter down to. It's like, I remember back in the day when I got a, a, a scale and it changed everything. And like, whatever younger generation is, they'll be like saying scales. What are those? Like we just measure everything. Like uh, I don't even know what they'll be doing. With our mind. Yeah, exactly. Know, something weird. Ah, yeah. That's even better. <laughs> but it's, it's, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Do you have anything going on right now in, in, in your kitchen that would be of interest? Um, oh, anything fun? Well, yeah, actually speaking specifically in regard to the uh, episode, we keep referring back to with the, uh, with the water, kefir or no, not the water kefir, the ginger beer plant. I had specifically stated that I had not experienced what HM Ward had talked about in regard to the sliminess of the the beverage or the, the, the viscosity or some kind of change. I don't remember what his words were, but I do remember myself stating that I had not experienced that. Mm-hmm. And then bam, out of nowhere, a few days ago, my uh, ginger beer plant got thick like it's, it's got like, um, I wouldn't call it sliminess because again, it's a positive kind of thing. It's like just this thick texture. It almost is like a, like a, like a way oversaturated, like kind of idea of like a, 
a sugar water or something, or like a simple syrup or something like something that's like thicker than it should be mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a good way. It's, it's exciting. And especially I was like, wow, that is exactly what HM Ward was talking about back in the 1800s. I'm experiencing now. Don't know what changed. Everything was relatively similar. As far as I know, I'd have to go back and look and see if I took any notes previously, which I don't think I did, but, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm about to switch over, I think again tomorrow. And so I'll see if I receive the same sliminess. Like if, if the, the culture just decided to start giving the slime and it's here to stay, we'll see. Huh. That's really interesting, especially since you mentioned that yours wasn't like that at all. And then all, then, you know, bam, all of a sudden, like snap of the finger, it changed. Yeah. They're like, we'll show you. <laughs> we can be slimy too. Yes. And that's, it's what it's, it's what it's done. And it, it remains slimy too. I was kind of wondering if it would go away because I've just been allowing, uh, sometimes I'll flavor ginger beer beyond fla- uh, ginger flavoring once it's into second fermentation and I seal it and let it get carbonated but I just didn't flavor this one any, any other way. I just have it doing a second fermentation in a closed Mason jar and it's still been uh, thick. So it's, it's, it's interesting because it coats. I, I, the reason why I think I'm interested in these kind of these thicker uh, sensations and textures mainly is because it, it alters the perception of the way I not only experience, but also I feel like the way that I taste it. Um, I feel like it coating the tongue differently. It has to be altering something and I don't have any evidence to back this up whatsoever, but uh, I'll try and find some. And it's, there's just something fascinating about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just one of those weird subsets of people that actually enjoy this kind of texture. And uh, I guess fermentation is a good place for me to be then. I mean, I like um, things that are thicker than water because I think viscosity is based off of a lot of stuff and science is based off of water, especially in food. I like things that are thicker than, than water viscosity. Um, but I don't like exceptionally slimy that to me just kind of reminds me of snot. And, you know, when you have like, when you're outside and it's really cold, um, and you have like snot running down your nose and you kind of like suck it into your nose and you kind of get a little of it in your mouth. You know, to be honest, everyone does if it's cold outside. It's just how your body works. Um, I don't like that. You're supposed to I blow do. your nose. <laughs> well, if you don't have like a tissue, it just kind of happens. Just I'm suck sure it back up there. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's done it. I'm going to all admit it that you just kind of suck it up. And I remember doing that a lot in college walking to class because, you know, you'd be so cold and you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think about needing a tissue like when you're outside. You mean I mean, it's, it's not why. appropriate to use a sleeve. You just, <laughs> I guess you could just like wipe it on your sleeve and just be fine with it. And go or the, about your or day. the farmer, <laughs> like, uh, like what is that? Like close one nostril and shoot it out the other. And Oh yeah. The farmer blow. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we, we do do, or my husband does do that pretty often when we're outside. I don't know why, I guess because he doesn't have a tissue. So he just kind of, well, it's good. Really, he's not doing He'll be really inside. embarrassed that I told everyone that, but he's okay with it. He doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to bother him too much because he kind of does it in public occasion, not in like a big crowd, large crowd, but like when we're out for a jog or walking the dog or something, he'll, you know, just give a little blow and we go about our business. Should get a little spittoon for it so we can do it inside too or something. Ooh, I don't know if I'd want to encourage that or even give him the idea that that is a possibility because that would be... It might make you more comfortable with this mucousy kind of texture and 
you might acquire a taste for the slimy aspects of yogurt and things like natto and otherwise. I don't know. It's it, like, I feel like, I guess it is something that's an acquired taste and I don't like snot. Mucus isn't really something that I enjoy. Um, but it's more of like a texture thing. Yeah, it's definitely more of a, it's more of a texture type uh, experience. And I feel like it affects flavor. And I think that's why like the first Vili that I had, uh, again, Vili being a, more of a, a Finnish origin of yogurt or, or fermented dairy that is uh, forms these polysaccharide bonds with, I forget which bacteria off the top of my head that are creating compounds that, that make that possible. And it just, it stretches and is it, is it pediococcus or, um, a certain strain of lactobacillus? I think it's Cremoris, uh, lacto, uh, is that Laconistoc or is that, I can't think of what it, I think, think whichever one. No, I think it's Laconistoc. Yeah. Uh, Lacon, oh wait, uh, it might be just, we'll look it up. I'll put it in the show notes for, I think, I think I said what it was in a blog post a long time ago, but it's, it's whichever, I know there's different Cremoris ones, but it's one that ends in Cremoris, which makes sense kind of name wise. It's an easy way for me to remember. Mm-hmm. It's kind of creamy. It kind of creates this, this stretchy aspect. And the first feely that I ever encountered kind of was lacking in much depth. It was like, it had the texture, which I enjoyed, but it was almost kind of hollow in flavor. Whereas the, the culture that I, I keep now is the one with a uh, geotricum candidum, the same mold that's on uh camembert and other cheeses and elsewhere that, it for, mine doesn't even form very good of a mold, but it's like enough where it adds a lot of flavor. And so mm-hmm. the texture along with the flavor is what just makes it great. And that's what I like about this new Mazzoni too, is that it's got a a little bit more flavor to its slime would be the best way I could describe it. And, 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 and slime maybe isn't the right word. Like Nickelodeon Gak is a little bit how it moves. It's kind of got that, that stretchy morphing kind of aspect to it. But in the, on the tongue, it's kind of like gelatin, only gelatin that's turned oozy like glue. So it's, it's got a little bit more of a a emotion to it than gelatin, which can be kind of more broken apart. I mean, you can break apart these bonds too. If you stir it, it loses its stringiness, but that's my, my, my sharing of interest in, in the slime, I guess, if I don't might as well call it slime. I mean, it's slime. close enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think Vili looks a lot like, um, Elmer's glue. It I is, know it doesn't, yes. it doesn't taste like it, but, um, just that sliminess, not sliminess. It's just like really thick and it just kind of like, uh, it just like coats your hands, but it doesn't stick to it. Yeah. It's a lot like Gak where when you do kind of like lift it out of the, out of the tub or something, you, it kind of runs through your fingers, but then it doesn't really stick to your hand. So you it's can so much up. fun. It's so weird. I think but, that's what it, I think it's partly the weird aspect of it. Um, that, that something that's just, it's because it's so, I, I probably would not be as drawn to these kind of things if I'd grown up in a culture where say like Finland, that, this is more common. I don't think it would be as fascinating to me. And so maybe it's just, you know, I've been doing this for a few years with the Vili. Um, maybe it's just, or maybe it's only been a couple of years since I've uh, really started keeping Vili. And, you know, it's whatever it is, it's, it's still novel enough for me that I, I appreciate it. Hmm. Yeah. It's just really 
interesting how different, how you can have so many different types of yogurt. And that's just a really good example of how you can use different types of bacteria to get the different end result or that is based different in the sense that it like looks different, smells different, tastes slightly different, but it has the same health properties as any other type of yogurt. I guess is what I'm saying. I wonder, I mean, like, I like, because I know most of the research on health has been in regard to the commercial strains or, or the Bulgarian originally back in the early 1900s. I wonder how much of that is. Well, I do know that there's, there's some research being done on like say Vigli or otherwise, but those are in different cultures. So in different languages generally too. So there's probably a lot of information out there. Yeah. It's all definitely healthy to a certain extent. And for myself more than anything, fermented and dairy, what is the only way that I can even enjoy anything dairy related at all? Because it's otherwise I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. So I can't, I can't do that. But I, uh, that, which, which also brings me to, and, and then I'll stop talking about fermented dairy for a moment, but the, uh, I've been doing a lot more with, I, I don't have an ice cream maker, but I've been doing some fermented ice cream or mm-hmm. cultured ice cream or ice cultured cream. I don't, maybe it's using cultured cream, as opposed to yogurt, say making frozen yogurt. So I'm doing everything the same as making ice cream. Only I'm using, I'm culturing the cream first. So it gets really thick. I usually generally use my uh, culture of uh, pime, which is generally a drinkable yogurt, but it's very thick when it's cultured in heavy whipping cream. Mm-hmm. And I've been putting that in the freezer, putting it through a food processor uh, after it's frozen because I used to do that with, uh, with, with bananas to do a, a non-dairy kind of cool ice cream in the, in the summer and why I'm working with ice creams in the dead of winter. It's just fascinating. So I got on a kick of doing this and it's, it's working really well. So it's easy to, easy to do without an ice cream maker. I was actually surprised that just freeze it, put it in the food processor, blend it all up. It's actually at the consistency that I love it at that point because it's like almost like ice cream having melted a little. Um, but then it can be put back in the freezer and it will freeze uh, and get more solid, like a more traditional ice cream. But, uh, it's, that's the other great thing that these fermented dairy products allow because otherwise I can, I, I think there's like one version of lactose free ice cream. Not that I'm a huge ice cream person, but now I'm on a kick of it because I'm, I'm making it with fermented dairy. Yeah. Well, this past summer I was going to, um, buy an ice cream maker, but I was, I mean, they were kind of the ones I were looking at, I was looking at were kind of expensive, expensive enough where I couldn't justify getting it. And then if I didn't, like the way it worked, or I kind of got off this homemade ice cream kick, then I'd be like, well, that was a whole bunch of money wasted. So, um, well, this summer I'm planning on making some when it gets really hot outside. Um, cause I like having a little scoop of ice cream or, you know, frozen yogurt or something. in the after dinner, um, if you're outside and take it to a park or something like that. But, um, I've always been on the fence about what to do. Cause my mom even had an ice cream maker. Um, I don't know where she got it from or how much she spent on it, but I've never made ice cream without one. Do you have so a food I would processor? like to know how you do it. Yeah. Well, I have a very small food processor. I had a big one. Um, and then I think it was just kind of a cheapo one that, um, someone gave us cause it stopped working. It was really weird. Like 90% of the time you'd plug it in and it would not work. But then that 10%, you just, it's one of those things you just have to take a chance. Like, is it going to work today? Fingers crossed when you plug it in. I hope it does. So we got rid of it and we bought like a really small one. It was a KitchenAid one. It works great, but it doesn't have a very large load capacity. 
the so. plus side of having the low or the, the the small load capacity is that it is easier to process smaller amounts of things. That's the one plus side. I don't have a smaller one. That's the only reason why I'd like one. Generally, I have to like switch to either pestle and mortar or blender. And uh, that sometimes is a little bit more difficult. But yeah, the one, the food processor I have is one of the larger ones, but it's really old. It's actually from a thrift store that I got a few years back. And uh, because I'd never really wanted a food processor before, I was like, eh, it's just another thing that I don't think I'd really use that much. But ever since I got it, I've used it so much. So mine's mm -hmm. old, not really necessarily that pretty looking, but it lasts. It's it works. yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's like seventies, well, eighties. And, and that's how I feel about a lot of like modern food, um, equipment or, um, things like that. Like, I just really like the way the older stuff works because I think that it, this makes me sound like I'm like a million years old, but they just made quality like back in the eighties or nineties or something. When I, I'm just thinking of like the stuff my parents had versus the stuff I have, um, where I remember my mom has a food processor. It's probably the same one you have. She's had it for years. I have no idea where she got it, and she's, but she still has it, and she doesn't use it all the time because she has a small one like me to just um, chop up small, like just smaller quantities of stuff because that's usually what we use it for. Like we, um, to make like guacamole or to kind of um, cut up vegetables. Um, so there's just smaller and they're um, the same size. That's what we usually use it for. Um, we don't need the big one, but just stuff like that. Like my mom has this really old food processor that's great and it still works and she still has it. And I think she also has like, she probably still has the ice cream maker for all I know. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it's probably in the basement collecting dust, but it works. And she's had it for like 20 years. Yeah. See, that's the, the challenge that I have. I, I considered ice cream makers at one point too. And, and that's one where it's like, that's such a single use item in the, in the kitchen that it's really kind of hard. Like even a pasta maker, like I can spin that into all kinds of flattening out any kinds of doughs beyond pasta. And I actually use it quite a bit. That one was a hard sell for me thinking about it first too, but like something like a ice cream maker sorbet. I mean, that's about as far of a stretch. I can't think of anything else that I can use it for. And I even try generally, if I'm looking at getting some kind of gadget that's going to take up more space, then I try and think I even look online and see alternative uses for such and such. And there's really not a whole lot of stuff for that. And the new ones, they're kind of expensive and they're, they, they just see, they seem more breakable. Yeah. It's just, again, it goes back to quality. They just don't, they don't make them like they used to. Um, so I just haven't done it. I haven't pulled the plug yet. So hopefully I'm, I'm going to try your food processor method, see if it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah, it's. I think you will be surprised. I, being small, it'll, you'll probably have to do smaller portions, free smaller portions, because otherwise you'll have trouble breaking them up. But it works great. And I definitely say, even though if you uh, consume non-fermented dairy, that try the the cultured cream, because I think it, I like to think it adds something because it is more flavor to it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's worth giving a try. And something else that's worth giving a try. I know I said I'd stop talking about fermented dairy, but I've just been making butter and I've just decided, you know what, I'm not going to use a food processor to, to break up, uh, the, because again, I've just been doing a lot of cultured cream, uh, and you know, I've been using a Mason jar and it's kind of fun, but it's exhausting to, do you put it in the Mason jar and shake it? Yeah. Have you done that? <laughs> I've done it a, a long time ago. I haven't done it since then. Yeah. It's, it's, I've done it a couple times or no, two or three times now, uh, more recently. I'm just like, you know what? 
And the next step is I'm going to start comparing the differences between using a mechanical device and shaking it because I know there is difference between agitation and the the blending or or whatnot uh, whipping action, but I don't know because I, I've I've understood that there's a difference in texture. But if if anyone doesn't know, taking a mason jar, putting cream in it, I use cultured cream. So again, taking a yogurt culture in culture uh, culturing the cream. I don't use Bulgarian or commercial yogurt that is thermophilic and needs higher temperatures because I find it's very hard to not let it oversour too quickly before it thickens. And so then it just takes a very powerful flavor, but these heirloom yogurts, I just inoculated with that. And then after 12 hours, I've got this cultured cream and then just shaking it in a jar, more space in the jar helps. Uh, it, like, so taking like a quart size Mason jar and only filling it halfway with the cultured cream or spooning it in because it's pretty thick at that point, And then just shaking it like crazy for 15, 20 minutes. Well, maybe when your son gets older, you can pawn that that task off to him. <laughs> or you can make it a game. You could like play music and he can be dancing or something and you can be shaking it. Yeah, I will have to be at once he's a, a little like a, I wonder what age I'll start letting him shake a glass container vigorously for long periods of time that easily uh, make for exhaustion. And I just I wonder if I'm setting myself up for broken glass somewhere. Because I, I sometimes have to be very cautious of like, I feel like I'm going to like, you know, it's like, especially if shaking for a long time. I mean, it's a workout to a certain extent. And, you know, like I haven't had sweaty hands or anything, but I can just imagine if I were trying to do this in the heat of the summer, which I probably would just use a food processor at that point. Maybe it's, maybe it's because it's so cold outside. I'm just, just experimenting with these weird things because it at least gives me some physical activity that otherwise I would not be doing crammed up inside. Yeah. Hmm. You should maybe look into, um, I know that they have, it's a machine that is, I think it's called the handshaker. We used to have it, um, in a lab I worked at and you, you'd put your samples on it and you set the timer and the speed and it would just shake it. It's just like two metal prongs that you would tighten. You'd put your sample in, you tighten in between the two metal prongs and you tighten it so that it wouldn't move and you set it and you set it and forget it. Um, and it just starts shaking. So is that kind of like how expensive it is, but I mean, we, we used it in the lab I was in for a while. Hey, I, I'm, I'll, I'll look for those because there is a, the university here has a, a swap shop that they have that they sometimes have lab equipment or other things that get sold at kind of like thrift store type auction or things. And so if I ever see one of those, wouldn't that be the same as like, kind of like a, an agitator for stuff or is it different? Like, no, I think it's pretty much the same thing as an agitator. Um, just the the shape of it and the way that it it was designed to mimic handshaking okay i mean that's what i think that's what it says if you look online for if you look at the model i don't remember what the exact name for it was or the model number but um it said exactly like to mimic the the wrist movement of you of shaking something well, I see all kinds of things with lab glass and that look like they're shaking things. So maybe one of those is somewhat similar, but it sounds like your things you're describing is a little different, but I'll keep an eye out for it after I do some blind tastes to see if it really makes a difference between shaking yeah. like the agitation versus whipping. Yeah. Well, we'll see. So, I mean, keep us updated on that. Um, but moving on, you sent me a really interesting video this week that I want to talk about. Well, and also saying that um, I noticed because uh jeffrey on facebook had sent it to us one of our listeners had sent in the link 
uh, just letting everyone know about something called uh, uh, Anime Moyashimon. And it's, well, I think it started out as manga, which as far as I understand, manga is more the drawing aspect and anime is the animated version of things. So it started out as drawing comic kind of, and then turned into an animated series. But the thing that I sent you a link to was the live action version of this comic. Oh, well, I started watching, you sent me both links of the anime version too. And I started watching the anime version and then it was just way too. Anime-y? Anime-y to my liking. And I was getting not annoyed or frustrated, but it was like, oh, I just let me see this other link. Maybe I can handle it a little more. Um, so I, I started it, watching it and I couldn't, I couldn't stop. So then the question is, why are we talking about this on a fermentation podcast? Um, well, it's about fermentation, which is really kind of weird. And I don't do a whole lot with, uh, anime or, or comics in general, um, that I've found, but this one's very fascinating because I think I'd even heard about it at one point, but never really thought much of it, but something about the live action version kind of drew me in a little bit more, even though it's really cheesy, kind of campy and, but it's. I don't know if it's supposed to educate people. I mean, well, obviously it is about educating people about microorganisms, but specifically about fermentation organisms for sake and for yogurt and for, uh, well, even microorganisms of the body, like, uh, of athlete's foot or different things. All these things were covered in the first episode, including the auk bird, the fermented auk in, in seal blubber. Yeah. I, I almost started laughing out, out loud. I mean, I laughed in my head because I was like, Oh my gosh, it's, I can't believe that he's even mentioning this awkward. Now he does in the video, they do say that it's an Alaskan tradition. So I don't know if that's true and that might be a discrepancy on their part Uh-oh. because I just, I just remember seeing that. Cause I was like, wait a second. I remember we were talking about that and it was like a Nordic thing or like a Greenland thing. I, I think it's Icelandic. Iceland. That was it. Um, so, but I mean, granted like such a minor thing that I, that I would have only picked up because we just talked about it. Otherwise I wouldn't have been like, I would have thought like, yeah, okay. Sounds good. And when I also wonder if it could be a translation error too. It could be too. Cause some of it didn't translate. Like I understood what they were trying to say, but it didn't translate to how we would say it in English. But you know, Japanese. Well, no, the subtitles. Oh, oh, you mean, oh, the way that they were written, <laughs> like the it way, wasn't yeah. uh, transliterated in this, the way that you would say it. Right. Yeah. I, I do not know any Japanese words. Besides sake and, um, you know, thank you, Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Roboto. That isn't even yeah, Japanese, that, that, but, no. but, but, the, but there were a lot of things that I, I, well, mostly I was just amazed that there were so many references to fermented microbes because, okay, well, I guess we should step back. It's the, the basis of this, uh, live action version of the anime is that it's a kid or a guy that's entering college as a first year student in the agricultural program, but he has a special uh, magical power like, of sorts. It's like a superpower. Yeah. Like he sees microbes only he doesn't see them microscopic. He sees them large and they're these cute little characters. And so he's always surrounded by microbes. And the thing that I think I saw f- learned the, the one thing that really stood out to me was I wasn't really that familiar with uh, that much in sake brewing, especially in regard to microorganisms that kind of taint flavor or don't make things good. And, uh, Hiachi was one that I had to look up more, but there were these 
kind of nasty looking microbes that he could see and that he was freaking out about and waving his hands all around about. And then I just looked it up and saw that it's a, it's definitely an issue in uh, sake brewing that I wasn't familiar with. Were you familiar with Hiachi? No, I had to look it up too, because I didn't know what it was. I, I just, same thought process as you. I didn't realize that there was a contaminating microorganism in sake. It just kind of, I mean, I would, that was just being very naive of myself um, for not knowing, but I looked it up and yeah, I don't, it has something to do with a certain type of acid that they like a lot. This um, bad bacteria that the um, mold makes. Yeah. And it's, that's it, right. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I forget now that I think about it too, but I kind of equated it when I was reading through Hiachi, I think it's Hiachi Khan or Ken or, uh, Ken that is similar. I would think that in, in dairy listeria contamination or, or bacteriophages or mm-hmm. in, in, uh, like with, with alcohol fermentation in general, just acidobacter turning things to vinegar. Like that's kind of where I put it into the the realm of like things where, where something is fermented regularly all the time. It's just a, a ripe environment for certain enemies of the, and they're not necessarily bad bacteria. They're just, they're not, they're just contaminants to what people want. They don't want that in their, their, because as you, if you watch the live action version, you will see that it, he made a very exaggerated, dramatic response to it. And once everyone else figured out that it was in there too, that it was a serious thing. And I guess it's also difficult to get rid of if it comes around. So Keep that Hiachi away. Um, well, when it was that exact moment. So I learned um, a lot about Hiachi, which I didn't know about. Um, but the other thing I learned or thought that just kind of like made me start thinking was that would be the worst superpower to ever have to just see microbes all the time, I guess, because there are microbes everywhere. And that's the or one. Is it? Is he just like, can he just specifically see fermentation microorganisms well it doesn't seem well it does i don't know is uh the 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 t bacteria that affects uh is the main culprit for athlete's foot i don't think that they're doing fermentation i guess it's more of a like is it a mold growth or something or i don't know i don't know much about athlete's foot but they do mention it i wish i well i'm sorry that's a spoiler alert that i guess people don't know that he's gonna uh, lean down and look at someone's foot and, and diagnose the athlete's foot there. But um, it's, it's really not much. It's if you're interested in watching, it, it's worth seeing. Yeah. That's one of the, the one thing critique I haven't watched any more than the first episode, but yes, it does seem like it's definitely slanted in an educational format towards fermentation specifically. And you're right. He would see microbes everywhere if he were really seeing all microbes. And I mean, that would just be overwhelming because it's probably not even as, as simple as simplified as our understanding of the microscopic world, it's probably, I can only imagine it's got to be way crazier like than what we can understand. Um, and so I can only imagine if that was enlarged, that that would just be overwhelming. And I would, I, I think that the, if there's anyone in real life, that's actually like that, they're probably in an insane asylum or locked up or, or just died because they couldn't take it. Oh, I'm sure. And I just, I, I just know that there are microorganisms everywhere and just seeing him, you know, waving his arms because there's this, huge, you know, like a river of microorganisms coming towards him and him just having this like negative reaction to it. Um, that was the moment I was like, gosh, if I had a superpower, that would not be the one I want. I'd I'd take it for like an hour or a day. I think it'd be cool to see. And like, 
I, I would want it just to be like in my working space in like a laboratory or something just to be able to, cause you know, not to go into too much of like what he can do. Um, I think that would be useful, but just like everyday life, you wake up and you just like see microbes everywhere. I think that would be, that would be a nightmare. Yeah. Especially if they had little voices like they have in this they're, they're I mean, they're, they're cute ish, but it would get kind of, kind of annoying. And especially they, they seem to continually say, let's brew. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but it, it's kind of funny. It's, I think it's the, it's, well, I guess, no, but is it, I think it's some of the different ones too, but I thought it was specifically the, the, um, Aspergillus ones that were saying it, but it was there. I think that's the one challenge is that they do cover a lot, uh, in, in, or say a lot. And there, there are a lot of subtitles. Um, yeah, it was that I did have a little, I did have a hard time, um, reading the subtitles because of just the format in which they wrote the subtitles. It wasn't from top to bottom. There would be one subtitle at the bottom and then another one on top of it. And it, you know, once someone, cause there were just a lot of the microbes talking over each other. Um, so I didn't catch everything that they were saying when it, when they were talking. So, um, that was the only, you know, negative thing I have to say about it. I think I'll watch, video. I'll watch a, a few more episodes just to see, because there's all kinds of weird, uh, maybe not weird probably the, the wrong word. Compl- well, okay. It's, it's, it's kind of weird to, to, to my, uh, I, I don't watch a lot of, uh, Japanese pop culture shows or television or even television in general. There's probably a lot of things on, on, uh, United States television that I would think is very odd nowadays. Um, because since I don't really, I'm not connected into that either, but, but either way, it's, it's fascinating. I'll continue to try and watch it because it's kind of a, I want to see what else they actually share because, and I also wonder how successful it is at getting people to think about microorganisms if that was the full on reason to do it, or if it was just, you know, a good topic for a manga comic and it's what it's, what it's turned into is having all of these factual aspects thrown in. And maybe that is more of a, an aspect of anime that I'm not as familiar with either. So pretty much I don't have any, um, expertise to talk about any of this kind of stuff, but it is fascinating. You should at least watch one episode and who knows, maybe you two will get hooked on this. And then if you do, then there's of course a consumerist aspect to it as well, where you can get all kinds of like plush toys of the microorganisms or little figurines. There's all kinds of paraphernalia that a person could get if they really got like became total fans of this, although are kind of late to the game because I think the original show came out in the mid two thousands. So Got some catching the up show to do. might not be, it may be over in that. I don't think there's anything. Well, I think there's still new of the comic, but the show itself. Yeah. I think it was a 2010 thing. Okay. Well, no, I'll probably watch a few more episodes just because I do want to see where the show's going. You know, the, the first episode of any show, they kind of throw a lot of stuff in you at, you know, at you. Um, and I like, it's just really nerdy. I just like that. <laughs> yeah. There's something. Yeah. And I think they do throw a lot of stuff because it seems that both the, the, the anime and the live action version from doing some really quick looking up of just getting a better reference for this show. It did seem that I saw mention a couple times of people saying it's almost seems like the first, uh, manga series is in the first episode or they, they do a, they cover a quite a bit of the original comic in these first episodes. So, or each episode covers quite a bit. So it's probably more fast paced in general anyway. So there's, there's a lot to take in. Um, it doesn't seem like from a Wikipedia page talking about which microorganisms they cover. There's about 20, it seems. 
it seems like, so I'm wondering what like a season or two of this show, the would be like, because how much more information can they really share? And it will be interesting to see. Maybe maybe we'll follow up on it. Yeah. I mean, I'll probably watch a few more and see where it goes. Um, I kind of want to know, I I meant to do this before we um, talked about it today, but I wanted, I wanted to know if like, what was their thought process before for even developing a show like this? Like it wasn't meant to be an educational thing that gets run in schools. Remember when you were kids, you would watch, you know, you're a kid and you watch something about, I don't know, something about science or history. And it was a show that was created solely for the purpose of like schools. So I wonder if it was that, or if this is like a mainstream thing that's on like primetime TV on Monday night. Well, it was like with the, I do know that the show, the, the live action show being the thing that we both watched is, or was played on a similar channel that anime is played on. So it's just a cartoon kind of uh, network that was, was playing it. And then they Mm. happen to also play this one. So it, it, but again, uh, cultural divides here, I think a little bit, and especially not knowing much about the subset of, of, of anime and, and have only seen a, a few anime, uh, feature length films. It's, I don't really have enough information, but I think that this is kind of a little bit more of a cultural difference too. Um, in, in not that all anime or all manga have these kind of things. And I really don't know what I'm talking about, but it just, it has that kind of sense that it's like, it's very pop culture and, in can't be kind of show that doesn't feel educational in the sense of, I mean, it is purposely educational, but it doesn't feel purposely educational in the same sense. It's kind of weird. Mm. Yeah. I don't really know much about anime or Japanese television. So, I mean, this is all new to me. And so it's worth at least looking at. And if you can make it through the, the, the first few minutes, maybe, I mean, maybe other people will like it completely, but yeah, it took me a little while to even be accepting of it enough, but it's okay. It's, yeah. It it's interesting. It took me until after the um, the intro where they introduced all the characters and the music and stuff. That's once I got past that, which is maybe the first three or four minutes, um, then it was OK. Yeah. Then I w- then I was really hooked. Like, man, this is really interesting. But up until then, I was like, oh, OK, this is um, kind of stereotypical of a American university. But that's OK. I mean, that's not but, what I was expecting, but hey, it works. That's a stereotypical in the, in the sense of like, um, he's walking through a crowd of people and they're playing American football. And I don't remember what else he's cheerleaders and just kind of like random stuff that you would see or associate with like an American university, but they're all in like one place. Well, there is a Japan American football association. So that was founded in 1934. So football may be actually not a stereotype of American culture. It may, yeah, it may be a part of college life. That's amazing that you know the date. That's really, oh, I just, I just, I just Googled it real quick. Oh, I think that's, wow. I didn't know you knew a lot about Japanese American football. That's There's weird. even NFL Japan. I mean, I don't know anything about American football really in general. So, but NFL Japan official website. Hmm. Well, maybe that'll, maybe I'll start watching it because I don't know a lot about American football either. I mean, I just, I just recently learned the difference between, I mean, this is way off topic, the difference between offense and defense. And that was, and, and when I made that rev, like revelation, I was like, Oh, it makes so much more sense now. And I know that is, that is such a, like, I'm, I'm a smart person, but I didn't know the difference between that. And I'm sad to admit it. And I'm sure my husband's really, uh, probably embarrassed that I didn't know the difference until recently, but I mean, now it makes 
a whole much, like a lot more sense. And I enjoy watching football a lot more, but that was, sorry, that was like way off topic. It's all about learning though. I mean, Hey, we're, yeah, we're learning all learn, kinds of things. Yeah. I'm learning all kinds of stuff tonight. And, uh, and so, well, anyway, thank you, uh, Jeffrey for sending that link and, uh, for your other, other comments as well. And, um, I guess the, oh, there, oh yeah, there was one other thing that you had seen a link about with, in regard to uh, beer and a fire. Yeah, I saw this. Um, my aunt sent it to me. Um, it's called, it's called, um, the title of it is, is called an off duty firefighter uses beer to put out fire. Um, it was on Fox news. Um, we don't have cable or anything, so I didn't even know that this, um, happened, but it's really, it's kind of a funny, um, news article or news presentation. Um, and it's just basically, uh, I think he said that there was, um, a huge semi truck that broke down and somehow caught on fire and the fire extinguisher didn't work, um, to extinguish the fire. And he asked the firefighter asked the, uh, driver if he had water, what was in the back of his truck. And the man said beer and he, the firefighter for some reason thought like that would be a good thing to use to try to extinguish the fire, which is weird because, um, depending on the type of beer, it would have only ignited the fire more based off of the alcohol in it. But he just happened to look out and I mean, this sounds terrible, but it was uh, banquet beer Coors light and it extinguished the fire. I'm not familiar with banquet beer. What is it's like- just, it's just like Coors, you know, there's Coors light. This is just like Lighter normal than Coors. light. Oh, normal. Oh, no, normal. Like, oh, okay. He- Coors heavy. Oh, okay. <laughs> but they use that to extinguish the fire. Um, and it, it, if you look at the can, I didn't realize this until a few years ago. Um, but Coors is called the banquet beer. Oh, okay. On the can, it says that. So, um, so then was I was really just wondering, are they shaking up the cans and then opening them? I don't think he says in the article. I think he just opens them and pours it on the fire. Oh, so, okay. So it was because I, I think I looked at that last minute, that link too. It was like the extinguisher wasn't working. So it's, it must not have been a huge fire, but big enough. But because I was like imagining like fire hose kind of action, like just like, uh, two cans opening, like shaking them up, opening them, then like shooting them at the, at the flames. Yeah. That's what I thought too. When she sent me this link. Um, and so I watched the video that's associated with it and it just sounds like it was a big enough fire that the fire extinguisher wasn't working, but small enough that they could use maybe a few cases of beer to put it out. And I don't, maybe they do say if they like shook them up and then sprayed them on the fire or if they just opened them and dumped them on the fire. I'm not sure. I, don't I wonder remember. if it would have been harder to have used the beer if it was better beer. Or I would think so. I mean, if it was, I don't know the alcohol content of Coors beer, but I know it's under five. And so I think anything above five would have would just have. caused more problems. So like if they'd had like Everclear vodka or something in there, that would have been bad news. If oh, they'd... they're totally screwed. <laughs> they would have probably <laughs> evacuated the that vehicle at that point, I'm assuming. I would think so too. Yeah. Because I mean, alcohol is very flammable. So I'm, it's funny that they, that I mean, it funny that he used beer to put out the fire, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, just because of that, that little piece of information. So, but he, you know, he was on Fox news and he was really proud of his little, um, life-saving skill. So he's important to know. I mean, and and I, I think if I was going to try it, I think I'd have to, to have to shake it up. I I, I wouldn't want to pour because then I can be a safe enough distance in case it does ignite. 
I would think that that'd be better. And possibly the, just the, the force of, well, would probably just make the flames bigger if it didn't work. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, try it. If it's the last resort, it may save you. Uh, I, I, think, I wonder, I think pickle brine might work too. Maybe. I would assume that like salt doesn't affect fire in a negative way, right? Uh, well, I'm I'm thinking. Well, no, I don't think so. So I'm it just might trying be... to think if you have like a. Well, I was thinking of like a grease fire, which is totally different. Um, you don't want to put any liquids on that, though, do you? No, you just want to cover it or something. Um, right? Yeah. Cover it with your uh, flour, right? Something like that. Yeah, I can't remember what you do, but I know that you don't put water on it or any sort of liquid. No, yes. I remember that, but. I don't think salt has anything to do with fire. Maybe, maybe it does extinguish it or well, helped extinguish it. Well, then that's the, like, so yeah, I guess that would be the, the, the bigger question is salt actually better at, at actually putting out a fire. And I don't know, but it's something that I think that someone can use their sauerkraut. I'm sure sauerkraut would because there's enough mass that could cover something. Yeah, Sure. Yeah, we're just um, trying to think of other ferments that people can use to to put out their fires. Hmm. Well, you can you can try it out and let us know. <laughs> Let's hope there's not any fires anytime soon. But yes, I will I will get back to you on that one. Yeah. So it's just a really funny article that it is. I mean, it, it it is. I learned a lot from it. I I never thought about putting beer on there, but if I do have a fire and I have coors, you know, just hanging out in my house, I will use it as a last resort. There so, you go. There you go. Should we, uh, should we leave that as the last one for today and follow up with anything else next, next yeah, week? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right. Well then, yeah, I mean, get, get back to us if you know anything about, uh, beer and fire or about, uh, Japanese anime or manga, uh, about, you know, if, if you have more information about any of those kind of things that we talked about tonight, uh, get a hold of us at firmup.com slash podcast slash 48 and uh, you can also send us an email at podcast at firmup.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook at firmup. And until next time, firm up. <laughs> <laughs>